And our scripture reading today is from Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and that can be found on page 1 in your pew Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take that one home as our gift to you. All right, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, everyone. As we continue and worship together and open this passage, I ask that you would uh, be able to just join with me as we pray and ask for God's help in studying the scriptures together this morning. Father in heaven, as we hear these words read about us, your creatures, humans, men and women made in the image of God, we are just even grieved afresh at the loss of life in New Zealand, the murder of those 50 people. We ask this morning as we have a fresh understanding of what it is to be made in the image of God. That you would comfort us, that you would convict us, that you would challenge us, that you would grow us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, where does our sense of human rights, of human dignity, come from? Where does that sense that, that each and every individual human life matters, that it ought to be seen as valuable and precious, where is that rooted in? Because this is one of those concepts that, that we almost take for granted in our culture, that of course each and every human life matters. The dignity of the individual, that every person is valuable, or at least in our culture we, we would aspire to those things, we give lip service to those things. But when you look over human history you realize quickly that our human dignity is not our idea. In fact, far from it, human dignity is not our idea. Human oppression is our idea, not human dignity. The pattern throughout history, and it repeats itself over and over and again, is that, that one group is oppressed by another, and then when that oppressed group gains power, they oppress others. William Golding's classic 1954 novel, the Lord of the Flies vividly depicts this reality, right? Maybe you had to read that for a high school English class. Boys stranded on an island after a plane crash quickly descend into opposing groups that brutalize one another. Human oppression, not human dignity, is the, is the norm. That's our idea, is oppression. Right? The inherent dignity of every human being no matter their background or age or race or gender or status or ethnicity, is rooted in the Judeo-Christian narrative of Genesis. It's a deeply biblical idea. It's not an idea that we have come up with on our own. Uh, Moses, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Genesis chapter 1, introduces this idea, a reality that would change the world. The idea that every human being, male and female, is intrinsically and irrevocably 
valuable. Not because of anything they've done or anything they've achieved or any capacity that they have, but simply because they are human. And what I want us to see this morning as we take a closer look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, is that you have never met a mere mortal. You have never met a mere mortal. Every human being you have encountered is a living, breathing, representation, reflection, image of the invisible and eternal, almighty God who created them. Now think about that statement for a moment in the context of the original moment that Moses is writing this account for God's people. The Genesis account was written by Moses as Israel is leaving Egypt and going into the promised land. Moses is writing for a group of people who have been enslaved and brutally oppressed for 400 years in Egypt. And on page one of that account, God affirms to his people the inherent dignity of every single human being, including that of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. The reality of human beings being made in the image of God as revealed in Genesis 1.26-28 is the bedrock and the source for understanding the inherent dignity and value of every other human life. It's unparalleled in anything else in, in ancient literature like this. Oppression is our pattern, is our idea. Human dignity is God's idea. You have never met a mere mortal. You have never met a mere mortal. And so this morning, as we look more closely at these verses, uh, we're only going to be able to scratch the surface of all of the implications of what it means to be made in the image of God. It's one of the most rich concepts in Christian faith, one of the most rich realities in all of creation. So what I wanted to do this morning in light of that is we just can't attempt a comprehensive understanding this morning. But what I want to do is suggest three postures Three postures that that every one of us must take as we encounter the image of God in one another and indeed even in ourselves. Three postures. And, And the first posture that we see here is the posture of celebration. We must celebrate in wonder at who we are as people made in the image of God. And and this is actually what we see happening in verse 27, which we heard read. So in verse 26, the first verse we heard read, God says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. It's a powerful, straightforward, clear statement of prose. But then you come to verse 27. And you leave prose behind. And you get the first poem in the Bible. The very first poem in the Bible. God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Some Bible trivia for you to tuck away. Very first poem in the Bible, page 1, Genesis 1.27. And poetry is the language that we use when we're at a loss for words. It's the language we use when we are encountering things that are just beyond ordinary language, whether it's grandeur or grief. Right? We, we don't write poems about how to change a flat tire. That's not, the, that's not the language we use for poetry. 
No, we, we, we write poems about, about falling in love, about heartbreak, about beauty and tragedy. And here God, the creator of all things, including human language, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the hand of Moses, composes a poem in celebration of his most prized creation, men and women, human beings made in his image. You have never met a mere mortal. But what does it actually mean then to be made in God's image? Well, much more than we, again, have time to cover this morning, but let me suggest two broad categories for us this morning. First is connecting and reflecting, and then second, ruling and reigning. So connecting and reflecting, ruling and reigning. But before we look more closely at those two categories, I want us to make an important distinction here. Often, in the history of the discussion of the image of God throughout history of the church and philosophy, there's been an attempt to sort of identify the image of God with particular capacities that human beings possess that that other animals or creatures in creation uh, don't have. For example, rationality or imagination or consciousness as oneself, as a self, those kinds of things. But there are at least two problems with this approach. First, the more we learn about the capacities of other creatures that God has made, it's it's less and less clear that human beings are exclusively alone in terms of possessing certain types of rationality or consciousness. But second, and even more important, if you reduce God's image to a set of capacities, what happens when a human being loses those capacities or never possesses them in the first place. For example, an infant born with anencephaly, missing a part of their brain, or a victim of of brain trauma, or an adult suffering in the end stages of severe dementia, who may no longer have the capacity to imagine or reason or even understand themselves as a self. Are they then no longer image bearers? No. The image of God is something that you have. It's not, it's not something that you have. <laughs> the image of God is not something that you possess. The image of God is something you are. It's who you are. From the moment of conception and then forevermore, every human being is the image of God. It's not something, it's not a set of capacities that we have. It is who we are such an important thing to remember. We can't miss that. Okay, so what about those categories then of connecting and reflecting, ruling and reigning? Well, these give us a sense of who we are as God's image. As God's image, human beings were made to connect with God and with one another and to reflect him in the world. And God himself is triune. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, One God eternally existing in three persons. And you even get a hint of that in the proclamation. Where's this sense of of let us, let us make humankind in our image. It takes the whole story of scripture for us to understand then who God is and all of his triune glory of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But here there's just hints, there's openness. Let us make man in our own image. God himself 
is in relationship with himself from all of eternity, a dance of joy and self-giving life. We bear the image of a relational God. At the core of all reality is not power, but love in relationship of a triune God. We are made in that image, which means that we were made to connect in relationship with God first and foremost and with one another. We were wired, made for connection. Which is why when when sin enters into the story in Genesis chapter 3, fear, loneliness, isolation, and shame enter for the very first time as that connection is disrupted. It's why we now feel so acutely the lack of connection with God, with one another. We long for And the the band One Republic actually captures this longing for connection uh, so well in in their song called Connection. Just take a, a look at this clip of it. These days my waves get lost in the ocean. Seven billion swimmers, man, I'm going through the motions. Sent up a flare, I need love and devotion. Trade it for some faces that I'll never know, notion. Maybe I should try to find the old me. Take me to the places and the people that know me. Trying to just connect, thinking maybe you could show me. If there's so many people here, then why am I so lonely? And that is, the, that is the cry of all of our hearts. Can I get a connection? Can I get a connection to be in relationship with someone? To be connected. It's what we were designed for. What we were created for. Connection. And in, in fact, extreme and prolonged isolation from other human beings literally causes us to lose our minds. It causes psychological breakdown. To flourish in all that it is to be human is to be connected with God and one another in harmonious relationship. That's essential for us as human beings made in the image of a relational God. And also, each and every human being is designed to show to the world and their fellow human beings a little bit of what God himself is like. We are made to reflect him to the world. And this is where that that second category of ruling and reigning comes in. And And you see it in verses 26 and then again in 28, that God made human beings in his image that they may rule with him over the world that he has made. Look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image after our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the cattle and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move on the earth. Human beings were created to rule over God's creation with him as a reflection of his kingship and royal rule. And this idea of a king Ruling over a kingdom is intimately connected with this idea and language of the image of God. Because in in Bible times, the language of image of God was was actually used in other cultures uh, at this time to describe the king who represented the God to his people. So Pharaoh or the emperor or whoever was, was the image of God. And these kings would actually then make images of themselves 
statues, likenesses of themselves that they would place all over their kingdoms. This was a common practice in the ancient world. But here we have something revolutionary. God saying that every human being, not just one king, not just men, but every man, every woman is the image of God, that they are kings and queens commissioned by God to rule wisely and justly over the world as his representatives. This was unlike anything else that had ever been said before in history, that every human being, every man, every woman is a king, a queen, an image of God ruling over creation. And what does this rule look like? Well, in the context of Genesis, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, it it looks like gardening, first and foremost. God places his people, his image, Adam and Eve, into the garden to cultivate it, to to grow it, to to cultivate families, to eventually cultivate neighborhoods and cities, to draw out all the, the latent capacities that God has woven into his creation. Every human being made in the image of God is commissioned and given power to rule. Every one of you here this morning, because you are God's image, has a crown on your head and a scepter in your hand. You are called and commissioned, given power and authority by God to rule, to exercise influence over the little part of creation and life that you have. You have never met a mere mortal. Uh, You should celebrate every time you encounter a human being. You're encountering God's image, a king, a royal king, a royal queen made in his image. You should greet them and say, hello, your majesty. In fact, this is going to be weird, but I want you to do that right now. I want you to turn to the person next to you and say to them, hello, your majesty. All right, just just go with me there. Hello, your majesty. Because that's, that's biblically correct. You are God's royal image. Every one of you. And how different would our interactions with our, our neighbors, much less our, our families, those we work with, our children, be if we looked on them with awe as kings and queens made in God's image? C.S. Lewis wrote in his address, The Weight of Glory, you have, There Are No Ordinary People. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke, work with, marry, snub, exploit. Immortal horrors are everlasting splendors. How would your Monday be different if you silently, I'm not suggesting you actually do this every day, but if you silently greeted everyone you encountered with, hello, your majesty, How would you perceive yourself differently if when you looked in the mirror each morning, you saw not a failure, not someone who needs to lose weight, who was overwhelmed or feels that they're not good enough, but instead saw a king, a queen, loved by, commissioned by God to rule his world in wisdom and justice? Because understand, do you understand, this is how God sees you. It is how he sees your neighbors. Will we see one another that way? Will we see ourselves that way?
the first posture we ought to have whenever we encounter the image of God is a posture of celebratory wonder. But there is a question inherent in Genesis 1 that leads us to the second posture that we have to take when we encounter the image of God. And the question is this, how will human beings exercise the rule that they've been given? They, They can either use their power and authority for the benefit of others, that's how God defines good and evil, or will they turn away from God Define good and evil on their own and use their power and their authority to advance their own ends, to advance self. And you don't have to be a Bible nerd or have read ahead to Genesis chapter 3 to know how that question is answered. If you've ever driven on 435 at rush hour or shopped for Christmas gifts on Black Friday, you know the answer to that question. We have rejected God's definition of good. We do not use our power for the benefit of others. We use it to advance ourselves. We ignore, yell at, snub, abuse, hate, oppress our fellow image bearers. Which is why our second posture, when we encounter the image of God in one another, in the world, must be one of repentance and lament and grief. We must repent and lament and grieve. We were designed for connection and reflection, for ruling and reigning, but instead we abuse the image in others and even in ourselves. And and this happens in those close, up-close interactions between individuals, bullying on the playground or over Snapchat, a rude gesture in traffic, a short temper with a child, a sarcastic eye roll with a coworker or spouse. But it also happens on a massive scale, in big, severe ways. It affects millions of people. We could talk about immigration, we could talk about domestic violence, the abuse of women, the abuse of children, so many things. But this morning I want to focus on two areas where we must repent and lament and grieve over the abuse of the image of God that are particularly vivid in our American context. Areas where we have denied fellow image bearers their whole dignity as human beings, either because of their age or developmental stage, or because of their physical appearance. And first, area is this. In abortion, we see how we have made image bearers less than because of their age and developmental stage. Since 1973, there have been over 50 million image bearers, 50 million image bearers killed through abortion. And and the procedures involved in making these abortions happen inherently involves violence against the most vulnerable human beings, unborn children. And as human beings... These unborn children, with a heartbeat, cannot simply be deleted like a typo. They must actually be killed in some way. Do we understand that? Either through poisoning or dismemberment by suction, they must be killed. Friends, brothers and sisters, how this grieves me. 
And yes, the church has erred in its vilification of women who have received abortions. And yes, those who seek abortions often are facing despair and circumstances that many of us here can only even begin to imagine. But as followers of Jesus committed to the dignity and sacredness of every human life, we must, we must protect the most vulnerable before and after birth. May we never be guilty of only having a pro-birth ethic, church. May we seek the good and flourishing of protection of every child and adult at every stage and age of development. From the moment of conception to the moment in which we draw our last breath. And let me just say this morning to you, if you have been wounded by abortion, if that's part of your story, in a room this size, there's bound to be some intersections here. That's part of your story, either as a woman who has received an abortion, a man who encouraged someone to get an abortion. I want you to know that you are loved. You were made in God's image. You are welcome in this place. And we would long more than anything for <coughs> this church to be a place of healing and forgiveness and hope for you. It's why, it's why we offer classes like Her Choice to Heal, the one that Carrie Lynn mentioned in the announcements, because this matters. We have made human beings made in the image of God less than based on their age and development, and we've also made them less than based merely on physical appearance. And this is a journey that I've been on for the last decade, and in particular in the last three years, a journey of understanding how deeply the lie of race has perpetuated the enslavement and abuse and oppression of people based only on their physical appearance. And we tend to think of, of racial categorization of people based on skin color. We tend to think that, that kind of categorization has always existed. But friends, there have not always been white people and black people as groups. Of course, there have always been different shades of skin color. But the idea that people of different skin tones belong to different races is a lie and a myth. The concept of race based on the color of skin is a human invention that's only about four or five hundred years old. Now, now, people, we said this at the very beginning, people have always looked down on and oppressed other groups that they viewed as inferior to themselves. But it wasn't until the advent of the African slave trade that the concept of race was introduced <coughs> as a grounds for this. Prior to the slave trade, you didn't have blacks and, and whites you had Greeks and Egyptians and Ethiopians and Romans and Phoenicians. You had ethnic and national groupings, which certainly <coughs> people oppressed and challenged one another on the basis of that. But it wasn't until about 400, 450 years ago as European colonial powers began to kidnap and exploit African and indigenous people for chattel slavery that they had to come up with a justification for how they could treat fellow human beings in that way. Because even, even they had this sense that if these people are truly and fully human. We, we couldn't possibly treat them like this. And the justification that they came up with? Race. Uh, the earliest documents that we can trace started in 
in Portugal, but eventually spread. This idea that those dark-skinned people from Africa were less human as a race, as a group. And therefore, it's not wrong for us to enslave them. And with that, the concepts of whiteness and blackness were born. But did you catch that? People didn't have racist ideas first. They didn't have the idea, Africans are inferior, therefore I can enslave them. No, people began enslaving Africans and then created a concept of race and racial superiority to justify the exploitation that they were already engaged in. The exploitation came first and then a concept of race was constructed to justify And the same justifications were used also across North and South America as grounds for taking indigenous people's lands and killing them. However, with the advent of of the Human Genome Project and the study of human DNA has shown conclusively that skin color does not indicate any inherent sort of racial grouping. There's one human race. And skin color is just a tiny, tiny, tiny variation and what it means to be human. In fact, there is more genetic diversity on the continent of Africa than between those of African and European descent. So, for example, studies have shown that that some Europeans share more genetic material in common with Somalis than Somalis do with Zimbabweans. Race, and especially any sort of race-based superiority, is simply a lie. David Uander, in his book, The Myth of Race, puts it this way. There is only one human race, from every perspective, biologically, historically, and in God's word, the Bible. But for the past 500 years, Western society has been playing a role in a drama written by the enemy of our souls. The myth of a master race, and every act has been a tragedy. It's time to change the script. And yet, despite the fact that race is an evil lie, that at one level does not exist, is not grounded in reality, it is nevertheless very real in its effects. John Perkins writes this. He says, whiteness, it turns out, is a very recent idea in the grand scheme of history, but it is a powerful one that was used to create categories and systems that would place value economically and otherwise on skin color and the groups of people who are either blessed or burdened by it. If race could be used to indicate a group's level of intelligence, its work ethic, its tendency to do wrong, then the majority culture could justify all types of bigotries and discriminations. Uh, One pastor put it this way, this is helpful. He says, race is like polyester. It's not natural, it's man-made, but it is very real. That's right. Race is like polyester. It is not natural, it is man-made, but it is very real. And guess what? Race doesn't just dehumanize those who have been oppressed by it. It also dehumanizes the oppressors and those who have benefited from the oppression. Whenever we are divided, whenever we oppress or are oppressed, the image of God is abused. And I don't say any of this to make those of us in the room who are considered white to feel guilty for who you are as someone made in the image of God. 
And yet I recognize because I feel it myself, these conversations are deeply uncomfortable. And yet what I am increasingly coming to the point in my own life is that I would rather be uncomfortable and know the truth than remain comfortable and oblivious, whether that be willfully or unintentionally. And friends, this is not about being politically correct. This is about being biblically correct. But I know it's a long journey. It's one that's taken me years to come to grips with. I'm still wrestling with the implications of what this means. And I want to wrestle with you in this. So, so reach out to me if you have questions. There's so much more to learn and to talk about here. And I'd love to journey with you in that. And if you want to begin that journey on your own, the two books, two books I'd recommend. There's so much good stuff here. But it's One Blood by John Perkins and The Myth of Equality by Ken Witzma. One Blood by John Perkins and The Myth of Equality by Ken Witzma. When we encounter the image of God, we must take the posture of repentance and lament. And this morning, I want to stop right now here in the middle of the message to do just that. We, we just, after going through it, we can't go on without stopping to repent right here and to lament. So I just ask you to bow your head with me. I want to do that right now. Father in heaven, today before you and the congregation gathered here this morning, I want to confess and repent of my indifference and apathy toward the abuse of your image bearers, both based on age and development and abortion and in physical appearance, the lie of race. Father, forgive me. Father, we are here today, we are lament and grieve the loss of life through abortion. We grieve and lament the evils of racism in our neighborhood, in our city, in our neighborhood, in our country, both in the past and in the ways that those realities still persist today. How we lament these things. Forgive us, Lord. Give us the strength, Lord. Give me the strength to move beyond our blindness, indifference, and fear that relates to abortion and racism and every other abuse of your image. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now it's heavy. It should be heavy. Because the glory of the image of God when it abused is always heavy. But church, we cannot stop here. We can't stop here because the Bible doesn't stop here. Which leads us to the third uh, and final posture toward the image of God that we have to take. When we encounter the image of God, we must celebrate and wonder. We must lament and repent and grief. And finally, we must rejoice and hope. Because brothers and sisters in Christ, we must rejoice in the hope that we have in him because even though we have fallen into ruin and abused the image of God in one another and even abused the image of God in ourselves, the true image of God has come. God has sent his own son to set it right, to rescue us, to love us, to renew us, to set us free from all of those things, to offer forgiveness and reconciliation to him and to one another. 
The true human has lived and still does live. Listen to Colossians 1, 14 through 20, one of the most beautiful poems in all of the Bible about Jesus. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the true image of God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. He is before all things and by Jesus all things hold together. Jesus is also the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the first. He's from the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have the fullness, his fullness, dwell in Jesus. And through Jesus to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus is the true image of God. And if we are in Christ, if you've placed your faith and hope and trust in him, then you are being renewed after that image. He is forgiving our sins. He is making us one. He is uniting us. He is reconciling us to one another and to himself. He's restoring in us our ability to use our God-given commission to rule in wisdom and love. Jesus is empowering us to be ambassadors for human dignity. Because this is the call of Genesis 1. It's the call of Colossians 1 that God's people renewed in his image, renewed in the image of his son, would be ambassadors for human dignity wherever they are on Monday. In all of life. That is our call, church. To reflect the glory of God. To connect with him. To be an ambassador for the value of every human being. Jesus shows us and empowers us by his spirit to be truly human, to serve and love your enemies. Jesus is a new way of being human. And this new way of human being, it being human doesn't erase the differences and beauties of cultures and ethnicities, far from it. In fact, the diversity of human ethnicity and language and culture is vital to expressing the fullness and beauty of God's image. As theologian Herman Babnik so beautifully points out, I was just blown away when I read this quote, that the image of God is too much too rich to be fully realized in a single human being. However richly gifted that human being may be, it can only be somewhat unfolded in its depth and riches in a humanity counting billions of members. So as we come to celebrate communion, we feast on the image of God broken for us that we might be forgiven and made whole. Jesus, the one true image, was broken so that we, his broken image bearers, could be made whole again.